Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Hello and welcome to Mainstream by Pixelsift. We've made our name delivering some of the best indie games coverage for games made in Australia and around the world. My name is Adam Christou and joining me on this episode of Mainstream is Nicholas Kennedy. It's episode 26. Mainstream's where we kind of discuss, you know, the bigger games. You know, your AAAs, your big blockbusters, maybe some of those sleeper indie hits that have kind of slipped under the radar. Just pretty much anything we've been playing and having a bit of fun with. So Nicholas, tell me what you've, you've been playing lately. Yeah, so I've been um, checking out a, a new franchise from Bandai Namco, who people know from, you know, behind the kind of, uh, they publish the From Software games, the Dark Souls and this uh, Sekiro uh, games. Um, and they've got a new one out called uh, Scarlet Nexus. So I've been uh, spending a little bit of time in that weird sci-fi anime-esque world. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I have been in the world of Scarlet Nexus as well. And I think weird is a very good term to describe what what are they calling a brain punk yeah um but outside of that i have uh been obsessively replaying the mass effect trilogy as part of mass effect legendary edition that got released back in early may um so yeah we think i think we'll just jump right in there and 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 chat a bit more about both of those let's do it this is mainstream by pixel sift Nick, Scarlet Nexus. Yeah. Tell me what's going on. What is this game about? Okay, so Sc- Scarlet Nexus is an I got to preface with all all of this. This is an anime ass game, man. And I uh, I know that you've been spending a bit of time with it as well, but I'll give you the quick sort of rundown, but I do have to also apologize ahead of time because there's a lot of stuff in this game. There's a lot of acronyms, there's a lot of world building that you sort of need to really give yourself over to, but anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Scarlet Nexus is a new franchise, I believe, from Bandai Namco, and it's kind of this, you know, character action fighting story game that takes elements from a lot of different games uh, at the moment and not always from where you would exactly expect. So I got a lot of tastes of, you know, control, um, persona, and like I mentioned before, some from soft, I even got a little bit of Sekiro in this one. So, um, um, yeah, when when you say control and persona, I I got a lot of those too. But I also I got things like Devil May Cry. I think a lot of people have have compared this to mm-hmm. as well because of the kind of rich action and combo based uh, fighting in this as well. But I also went to places like Fire Emblem and particularly the most recent Fire Emblem games, which have been very focused around like character development and building friendships and bonds within your parties. And I feel like that's a big part of the Scarlet Nexus world as well, right? Yeah, definitely. So it it does this pretty deft 
thing for you know a new a new franchise or like kind of the first attempt at a franchise where it weaves its combat arenas and it's and it's sort of like encounter based levels in with this kind of standby phase system where you get to sort of hang out with your crew you know you get to talk to the other people that are in your team but maybe adam before we talk about all that kind of stuff we should maybe kind of set up the world of scarlet nexus a little bit i might just do that just quickly mm, so because mm, you described this as an anime ass game it, and yeah and so i'm assuming it's uh-huh. in a very anime world it's in an extremely anime world so i i can only presume that it is set on earth in some description but it's an earth where some great kind of cataclysmic event happened 2000 years ago and the world was saved by this sort of jesus uh, messianic sort of figure um, and you live in a city called New Himuka. And New Himuka is home, uh, home to a couple of different sort of political groups um, and also some sort of military groups. And you're a member of one of those military groups called the OSF or the Other Suppression Force. And people kind of live peacefully in New Himuka. But one of the problems is, is they keep getting attacked by what I can only describe as like flower bouquets with like legs to die for and killer heels. It's pretty wild. Um, they come down from the sky and they attack the city and these are called the others and they're sort of Scarlet Nexus's, you know, primary monster that you'll, that you'll be fighting with mostly. And as a member of the OSF, the reason that you're even a part of it in the first place is because you are a member of a very kind of small percentage of, of, you know, that society that has these kind of psychokinetic powers or these like sort of, um, you know, uh, extra abilities. So, and these can be lots of different things for the one of the two characters that you pick from the start, uh, Kasane Randall or uh, Yuito. Yeah, I forget his last name. Sorry. Sumeragi, we got there. There's a lot of proper nouns in this game. So you are forgiven. Yeah, yeah. So you pick one of those two characters and both of them have the same basic same ability, which is this kind of psychokinetic ability that lets them sort of just whiff things around a 3d space um but there's also characters that have things like you know teleportation invisibility some people can just like harness fire or electricity um and part of what you know kind of you know is cool about the opening hours of scarlet nexus is sort of learning everyone's abilities and you know sort of that kind of classically you know anime kids with cool special abilities and they've got their anime kid drama but they're also extremely powerful and kind of terrifying you know when you think about it um, but anyway, so you've got this kind of city of New Himuka and you join the OSF and then things kind of go from there. And, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of opening themes to the world of, uh, Scarlet Nexus. There's, you know, stuff like, you know, censorship, there's stuff like, you know, state owned, you know, state owned media. There's like just the kind of rumblings of kind of fascism kind of underneath this world as well, which I'm sure you got kind of tones of as well, Adam, if you're as sort of attuned oh, to that stuff look, as I am. This um, game is very not subtle. Yeah. And it's like we're setting up some stuff's gonna happen and maybe this government's evil. Maybe Nukamuka um, just isn't chill. Who knows? Mm, Who knew? But I, I think the big one for me is that everyone is connected to a psychic version of the internet, which mm. displays everything in the environment for them in augmented reality. And it's also- To be your... specific, Adam, let's say it displays advertisements for them. Let's be clear, you know, which yeah. is kind of- Advertisements of course, for them. where we would end up. And official government propaganda. Mm. And it's also the same network that everyone uses. The struggle arm systems hooks into this as well. It's how your teammates- bond and essentially share their powers in combat with you absolutely Um, but 
you know, that idea of like a, I guess, a collective consciousness that's kind of being used by, um, I guess, a, a city state is is an interesting concept as well. And where that goes, I don't want to spoil too much. But yeah, I think if you watched an anime or any television, there's some foreshadowing. Definitely. Yeah. And it doesn't really play its cards that closely to its chest. Obviously, obviously there's some stuff that, you know, um, is just easily, you can easily pick out. Um, but it, it does a pretty good job of kind of having fun with those concepts. It never sort of, it never sort of plays its cards so close to its chest that it becomes a bit like, um, you know, impenetrable or, or hard to kind of involve yourself with it because it's, it's just kind of moves along at a clip, which is actually pretty, pretty good as far as the story goes. Um, and one other thing we need to mention is that the monsters, I know that I mentioned, I called them others before, and I don't know how you get a more sort of um, uh, a more pregnant naming for an enemy force than to be a member of the other suppression force and you are fighting the others. But the thing that kind of really makes Scarlet Nexus special or the thing that it's going to live and die on ultimately is the combat. And um, I know we touched on this a little bit uh, earlier, but the way that combat in Scarlet Nexus works, and let's be clear, it's the best thing in the game by a mile. Um, and what it does is it, is it toes this really satisfying line of kind of just having the right amount of depth while also not being so dense that you can't kind of make your character do wildly cool looking things um, with just like pressing a couple of buttons. So, you know, it's always got a bunch of different things that you can do at once. And the, kind of the basic layout of it is it is that you're constantly bouncing between kind of uh, physical and psychokinetic attacks. Kasane has knives, I believe, that she kind of throws around around her, and Yuito has a sword. Um, but as far as the psychokinetic attacks go, you can just kind of pull the right trigger, and you'll just like pick up a fridge and chuck that at someone, and it's just kind of weaves into the way that you fight in a very sort of unobtrusive way. I found so I'm not having to say in the instance of something like control. I'm not having to like, you know, hold left trigger, pull the thing towards me, aim, chuck it at an enemy. It just, Scarlet Nexus does this really clever thing where it cuts out a bunch of those steps. It knows who you're fighting. It's got a really handholdy lock-on system, which almost becomes a bit annoying sometimes. Um, but it knows that you want to throw that fridge. So it kind of cuts out a lot of those steps for you and just lets you throw the fridge, which yeah. ultimately I, I kind leads of wanted... to it being just like extremely satisfying. Um, and I'll just finish my point about the way that these two kind of attacks, attack forms kind of, you know, weave in and out of each other. You use physical attacks to build up the bar of your psychokinetic attacks and your psychokinetic attacks kind of feed into your ultimate combo, which kind of lets you deal damage over a longer period of time. So you kind of have this toing and froing between the two where you can't be using too much of one, you can't be using too much of the other. And each of the, the each of the primary characters kind of does lean in one particular direction, but can't go all the way. Um, and so it, it it leads to you kind of having this, you know, you need to be consciously aware of like what sort of attack you're using at any one time. And for me, I just found that to be just really dynamic and really crunchy and just really satisfying. Yeah, and crunchy is the right word here because I I played this on PlayStation Five and it uses the haptic um kind of trigger stuff mm. in in the dual sense mm -hmm. so you really kind of have to push down and you feel like the trigger get a bit more taut as you get ready to like throw a car yeah. or I, throw a fridge yeah, in someone's see, face i played on ps4 so i didn't get any of that and i was really curious 
to hear like what that might have been for um been like for you with the with the dual sense controller it was very good yeah. um i really enjoyed the way that they brought those those kind of um those triggers into it but i think the other thing that just works so well for this combat style is the follow-up combos that, mm-hmm. that happen when you use psionic powers or vice versa. So you can throw like a car or a fridge or a chandelier or basically anything that's around you. And then you can immediately follow up with a melee attack, which will turn into a distance closer and zoom you right up to an enemy. Absolutely. And likewise, you can finish a melee combo and immediately transition into a psychic attack and your character will snap back and make room to kind of charge and throw something. And it just allows you to kind of um, do this sort of ping pong dance back and forth in combat that really lends to everything that you were talking about, about needing to balance those two combat styles. It's, it's really great. And both Kasane and Yuido play very differently with that style, but feel really satisfying in the same way. It's, it's remarkably well done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that like, the movement in combat is one of those things where it's kind of like the underlying, it's almost like the underlying foundation that you wouldn't even notice until you've had a couple fights and you've really gotten to grips with the combat because of what you mentioned about how you're not just deciding to throw, uh, you know, throw items with your, you know, psychic abilities. What that does to the way that your character places themselves in relation to enemies in a combat scenario is really influential so you know yeah you mentioned before like the distance closer after throwing something the fact that without you having to do anything with either of the the control sticks when you decide to throw something your character will jump back and there are a bunch of these sort of little motion elements weaved into each attack choice that the game just makes for you and figuring out what your character is going to actually do in a space when you decide to do something is like a very uh, significant part of like what comes into an overall combat strategy for the game. Um, and I just think that that, that is, yeah, it, I'm in a complete agreement with you. I just think it's extremely clever and it almost, it almost pushes against what a lot of us would assume we need to do in a combat, in a, in a sort of a character action game, which is, you know, keeping up your movement by running around, like kiting a character, getting behind them, all that kind of thing. And I almost had to unlearn a lot of a lot of kind of the way that I was controlling the character and just kind of let the game take me on a dance. It was almost kind of, you know, dancing with it in a way, which I found to be really clever because it was extremely, I felt like the game was very aware of what it was doing when it was setting me up for those things. Um, I don't know if you felt that way or not, but I just thought that it was, it's, it's the, the, the cleverness and the depth of the design there is, is really quite astounding and and very impressive. Yeah, I agree completely. And there's also like a pacing thing going on here that is really satisfying in that it carefully adds layers of complexity onto this initial, really satisfying combo system so that eventually you have a team member with you and you can activate their power to say, enhance your physical attacks. And then later on, you'll get a second team member who might have a specific power that kind of changes combat for you in a particular way, like making you invisible and letting you do a crit hit or something like that, or or perhaps giving you a blink movement ability, which really changes the way that you can approach a lot of combat and closing in on people. And then suddenly you have three team members, then you have four then you're unlocking the ability to do longer combos and then you're unlocking special modes of combos and it just kind of keeps piling on each other that so by the time you get towards the end of the game 
you have got so many different things sort of activating and procking off each other all surrounded by this really solid foot framework that's kind of in the center of it that it, it really gets to a point that i like i i i've struggled to think of action games that are very combo focused like this that i've really enjoyed and felt like the on-ramping for has been satisfying but this is one of those games where it's like i actually want to learn how to cancel attacks and to really lean into complex playing in this game because it was so satisfying and fun to play and the process of it teaching me its complexity was really satisfying as well i never felt out of depth but i never felt like frustrated with wanting more to do it always kind of met me as i was learning the systems absolutely and i i guess if there was maybe one one flaw with the combat is that i don't know about you i i didn't always find the enemy the enemy variety there, there's a lot of variety but perhaps not a lot of influential change there's a lot of different types of enemy archetypes i, I suppose you could say um but you know you'll have five of the same kind of, yeah, like, you know, bouquet with legs kind of enemy, you'll have five of the same sort of kind of uh, marionette sort of uh, walking sort of enemy thing. There's a lot of sort of dog crocodile-esque enemies that'll show up and they've got all their own attack patterns. And, and if anything, it kind of made me, the one thing that was lacking was I didn't feel like I was constantly being prompted to use different SAS maneuvers. There are certain enemies that require you to use things like teleportation in order to even get in hits on them in the first place. But um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't always work just in terms of like having enemies meeting where the kind of combat system was in terms of allowing you to sort of use all of that stuff. But it certainly didn't detract from the overall sort of um, enjoyment of the game itself. So I guess ultimately just to kind of, wrap up at the pre at the beginning of all of this i said this was an anime ass game but really nobody should take that to mean that that you know scarlet nexus is something that they shouldn't take a really good look at uh, if they're looking for satisfying yeah crunchy enjoyable combat with i think a world that is while it is ridiculous believes in itself enough and puts enough detail into it and has characters that are you know, the kind of usual likable archetypes um, that you uh, would expect from something like a persona. Um, so I think that I would honestly recommend this to anyone who has a bit of a penchant for like character action, beat em up combo games, um, but that are looking for something just a little bit different, just a little bit fresh. Um, and that actually kind of comes pretty fully formed um, and in, in quite an impressive way. Yeah, this is a surprise for me in a lot of ways. And I think if you really get into the social bonds element of Persona or, say, Fire Emblem. There is a lot to love about the other side of this game, which is all the social stuff, um, which is very anime. It's like, hey, we're on opposing ends of a battle here, but let's still go hang out at the cafe it's and my order gyoza it's together. It's my favorite thing about the game. <laughs> so funny. It's just like, hey, we'll just meet up. Why not? I know that you tried to kill me before, but let's go get a milkshake. <laughs> It's, it's great. This game has Tremendous. a real sense of humor about it, but it takes itself seriously. It's it's a lot of fun. That's Scarlet Nexus. It's out now on PlayStation 4, Xbox One X, Xbox Series X and S, PlayStation 5, PC, Bandai Namco. Um, really great new game, new franchise from them as well. And I believe a TV series has just started this week uh, featuring the story and characters as well. Sit down for a chat with your pals in video games. This is Mainstream by Pixel Sift.
And we're back. Okay, so, uh, Adam, what can you tell me about Mass Effect Legendary Edition? And before you start, I know that I did just lead into you, but what I will say is my experience with Mass Effect, and I think with everyone's experience with um, Mass Effect, is obviously those original three games, which was like sort of an iconic sci-fi epic that sort of ran throughout sort of the late the late 2000s. Um, for my soul, I played through uh, Mass Effect 1. I remember really loving it at the time. I don't think I took a, le- a lot away from it, though. I-, I-, I played Mass Effect 2. I think I really liked that as well. The combat obviously resonated with me. That was kind of the big step up with that game and obviously the sort of graphical fidel- fidelity. Then I put about five minutes into the opening of 3, and I think that that was kind of during the explosion of bad uh, you know, bad sort of t- uh, feelings about the ending of that game. So I sort of felt a bit weird about it at the time and just kind of dropped it and never really came back to it. But I know that you played the whole trilogy back then. You've probably got complicated feelings about it. I know you've got complicated feelings about even Andromeda, which you might talk about a little bit. But what can you tell me about Mass Effect Legendary Edition? Look, what I can tell you is one, I'm pretty biased. I have played these games maybe seven or eight times altogether uh, since they were first released. But it has been a good five, six years since I've kind of come back to this franchise. So for me, uh, Mass Effect, uh, you know, uh, remastered edition, um, legendary edition is the perfect opportunity for people to play Bioware's Magnum uh, RPG cover shooter opus uh, remastered for the current console generation in one big package where everything is in one launcher, all the DLC is being collected. Um, Some of these games have become notoriously difficult to actually install and run on computers and get all of the moving parts going. So to just have like Mass Effect 1 able to fully function and run on modern consoles and on PC is is a win already. Um, But I do think that, yeah, this is a great opportunity for people that never got into these games to kind of figure out what were they about and to kind of dip their toes in. And I think for a lot of people to go back as well and to kind of just re-experience um, the world and the stories, because like some of it really holds up, some of it does not. Uh, and I'll get into that in a bit more detail. But, um, you know, we might as well start with Mass Effect 1, um, which is, I guess, the game that's had the most work done to it and probably needed the most work done to it in, in this package. So, Uh, Mass Effect 1 has had a pretty big revamp. Combat mechanics were smoothed out and were completely reworked for this trilogy. Um, So guns now function and work properly. Uh, If you played the original Mass Effect without pumping dozens of points into a sniper rifle perk ability, you would go to use your sniper rifle and it would just sway like crazy and you could just never get a shot off. So that's gone. You can actually just use the gun now and it shoots. Um, some pretty imbalanced kind of combat abilities, like being able to get yourself on like 80% damage immunity on a loop for the entire game is out. Um, so there's been some rebalancing of that sort of stuff of leveling of skills. Um, but the entire game has had a massive graphics reworking as well with entire areas being repassed and lots and lots of work done to environments, um, lighting effects, but also just lots of different kind of new, um, assets being put into it. So it feels like an entirely new game in some ways as well and is honestly the most gorgeous of the three games now when I think about it. And the other two games, Mass Effect 2 and 3, have had less changes, just mainly small tweaks, some tiny balance changes, 
um, some distributing of some DLC item packs out into stores in those games so that you just buy them now instead of having them given to you straight away. Um, and they've just been up to 4K and have a new lighting engine. So they actually look a little bit less impressive than parts of Mass Effect 1, which got the real serious work done to it, which is kind of interesting. But um, I think I should probably go back a few steps and set up this world. Um, so Mass Effect, it's a science fiction universe created by Bioware. It's kind of set in the 2100s. You play Commander Shepard, who is a fully realized character, sort of like a a Geralt of Rivia type, if you will, from The Witcher. Um, they're a character that you're inhabiting, but you're not necessarily kind of creating your own kind of character and, and plopping it into the world. You're kind of stepping in the shoes of someone fully formed. Back in 2007, when Mass Effect first came out, there was a lot of big firsts that I feel like this game did. It was one of the first RPGs that, you know, big Western RPGs that had a lot of solid voice acting from start to finish. Um, that really kind of used voice acting for almost all of their cutscenes and all dialogue said by the main character as well. It created a system called the Dialogue Ring, which I think just people see in almost every game now to kind of like help you select dialogue and try and create a kind of natural flow of conversation between two people speaking. Um, it was also one of the first big games to have both a male and a female option for your lead character with fully voiced dialogue options. And, you know, back at the back in the time, I think that was considered just not worth the budget by a lot of AAA developers. But I think a lot of people realized the, the amount of work and effort that went into creating a female version of Commander Shepard and being able to see themselves represented in this space as well. And I think that is still an amazing thing to me looking back at how weird 2007 was that that was a standout note. Um, but it kind of shows you like just how impressive Mass Effect was for its time. I mean, these, these were three games designed to be a trilogy designed to have their save files transfer between each other so that you could keep narrative decisions flowing from one game to another. And I feel like we haven't seen a game series really try something like that or get some, get that ambitious with its narrative and storytelling across multiple um, kind of editions of a game in such a long time. There's so much that this series attempted to do or succeeded in doing that I think hasn't been replicated yet. And so there's a really good reason to kind of go back to these games and experience that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, positives there. Um, <laughs> I don't know how you felt about Mass Effect and, um, when you first played it and if any of those sorts of elements stuck out to you as kind of being revolutionary at the time. I remember being really impressed by it in the lead up, although at the same time, you know, in 2007, I was, I was pretty young, you know, I, I, I don't think I appreciated um, narrative experimentation or, or just the ambition that existed in Mass Effect to me and the way it was sold to me was that it was a very pretty game with a lot to do in it and a very big world. And I think that that's what kind of really got me uh, going at the time. And I, and I don't think that also I was terribly um, in the space for like grand space opera RPGs either, especially, I mean, I wasn't a Star Wars kid growing up. But what I did want to ask you about is just kind of the overarching the overarching narrative of these games and after, you know, going through it again after about five years, 
you know, what holds up? Does it does it hold up? Do these characters still speak to you? Do they feel a little bit flat? Do they feel a little more archetypy than perhaps they felt at the time? How did all of that come across to you? Did it touch you in the same ways that it did, you know, back then? What was your kind of emotional resonance with it this time around? Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of yes and a bit of no, I think, to, to that. And I think Actually, now that I'm thinking back at it, it's more like seven or eight years. So I think the last time I played one of these games was probably 2013, 2014. So I I think the first thing that started to hit me was just maybe my politics evolving and me maybe reading into things a lot more than I I did back then um, with Mass Effect 1. So to kind of set up, I guess, some kind of universe stuff that I think um, doesn't hold up quite well now is that the Mass Effect universe is governed by a council of alien races. Um, That council of alien races has decided that a special elite group of operative soldiers called specters need to exist to enforce the laws of the council and to do things that no one else can do and should be held above the law. So essentially they're super cops with no oversight. And so galactic civilization has just said, well, we need those. And, and that alone is just like automatically like a fascism red card to me these days. Um, you know, then your character Shepard, Commander Shepard, starts this game as pretty much a war hero. Um, you know, they're already a tried and true tested military person, a really good military leader and operator. Um, and depending on how you play your Commander Shepard, you could be kind of a bit of a sociopathic monster or a really charismatic leader who to be honest, feels like hashtag not all cops are bad, um, which is, you know, once again, kind of a bit icky, especially when you take on the role of a super cop in the galaxy that has no accountability at the end of the day, you're above the law and you make the law. Um, And the way that this universe and in the text itself sort of argues that that is necessary and that sometimes crossing the line is necessary makes me feel just a little bit weird in 2021 i mean i think a favorite character of a lot of people back in the day was garrus who is the turian um csec operative which is i guess like the police of the citadel which is a big galactic space station and the hub of galactic uh galactic economy and of civilization in this universe um and garrus is sort of like a frustrated burnt out cop who's sick of having to deal with all the rules and red tape in his job and just also kind of occasionally advocates hitting his prisoners and it's really uncomfortable um to be like wow we all thought he was really cool but actually he's a bit of a gross dude um and so that hasn't hit really well either i think there is a lot of stuff around gender and heteronormativity and and sexuality that is really awkward and uncomfortable in the first two games in particular um you know this is a game series where um a race of aliens called the Asari are monogendered. They have no gender um, and they can romance any alien in the universe because they kind of bond with them psychically and then use their genetic information to kind of rearrange and, and kind of randomize their own genetic data and then, you know, reproduce and create more Asari. So that's kind of like a rough thing there, but the way that the universe and that this game presents them is sexy blue aliens they're sexy blue psychic aliens that live for a thousand years. And sometimes in the first 300 years, they're mainly space strippers. And it's deeply uncomfortable to kind of go back to that and look at that and be like, this is clearly designed 
around a like a male gaze, uh, a particular lens of like um, kind of pulp sci-fi, the sexy kind of like green alien from Star Trek kind of is evoked here a little mm. bit. Um, you know, one of the main characters in the trilogy, Liara, is an Asari, and she's she's what I would call like the canon romance for Shepard in a lot of ways. And, you know, it was kind of revolutionary in 2007 to be able to play female Commander Shepard and get into a kind of big galactic soap opera, space opera romance with another woman. Um, but it felt really cheesy and towards the male gaze in a way that made me feel a bit uncomfortable. Their love didn't really feel sapphic if that makes sense. It felt more like kind of for dudes to leer at in the first game in a lot of ways. I think the second game really changed that up a lot. Um, but still, it was a game where there were no same-sex romance options outside of Liara um, for either male or female Commander Shepard. And up until the third game in particular, this was a science fiction universe that seemed to deny that any sort of man who has sex with man exists in its space. You never saw queer male characters anywhere. They were never referenced in any side text. They weren't kind of in the background or anything like that. They just didn't exist until the third game. That really sticks out to me as something of a bit of a disappointment, but also I guess you can say the third game went above and beyond that, really rectifying that with really solid same-sex romances for both male and female characters, really kind of fleshed out queer characters in this world as well. But it feels uncomfortable playing this game as a queer person particularly because my character in this is is one that likes to play as a gay male it's like i have to play the first two games basically just kind of avoiding all these romance options and traps in it it's really frustrating yeah it's it's an interesting series because mass effect kind of when it was the the world that you enter into is in in mass effect is almost like an aspirational one it's this beautiful united society that has to you know obviously fight against uh you know an extra like like an out of world uh threat in in the the form of the reapers but the the world as far as you know as far as you sub, uh, subtract the reapers from it is one that is obviously has its problems but yeah is this very aspirational sort of colorblind society almost in a sense and, and i it's kind of that energy that you get and I don't want to get like too political but like going into the sort of Obama years in America and the sort of political and social socio-political state that everyone was sort of in it, it almost like doesn't surprise me looking back at that where it's like yeah sure you know you can have um you can have like sapphic romance in this game oh look at these blue ladies but they're not actually ladies they're anything they're like whatever you want but really at its at the bedrock this game or at least like Mass Effect 1 and 2 especially are like at the end of the day products and products are made for certain people and these games were made for dudes like at the end of the day. And like I, it's really obvious that that comes through in, in, the, in sort of the, the threading of how that, that world is actually put together or when you sort of really get forensic with it, what it is actually saying about itself, um, those things kind of come through. And I think that that's kind of where some of the ickiness comes from it was sort of like the strangeness um but i did just kind of want to ask also about and i don't have any uh i don't have any experience with this but how are they how are they handling the ending um in the third one in this one i know that they did a bunch of patches um, oh yeah for that when yeah. it first released but yeah what's what's it like this time around oh um okay so I kind of want to go out and preface that I feel like the response to the ending when the third game first came out in retrospect is 
very embarrassing and kind of sad to Absolutely think about insane. now. And I think in a lot of get, get ways was almost like a a warning of where we were going to go in 2014 with a particular movement that starts with gamer and ends with gate. Um, you know, it was a uh, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, that being said, the ending in Mass Effect trilogy as it stands now is the enhanced edition ending that came out as DLC for Mass Effect 3 about six months after it was released, which expands but doesn't change the original ending. Um, and in context of extra DLC that was added into Mass Effect that kind of expanded some of the lore and really explained and fleshed out where that ending was going to go, I would say that the ending hits a lot better now and fits a lot better now. And, you know, removed from all of the controversy and, and issues that people had with it at the time, I honestly didn't have that much of a problem with it. I didn't really have a huge issue with the ending back when the game came out. And I think now it works and it's fine. Um you know, I, yeah, it, it works. What I am interested in is, is what you said just before about, um, the idea of this universe being a colorblind society of being like a reflection of that kind of, um, I guess that optimism of science fiction, that very Star Trek, the next generation utopia, or yeah, very Obama years, American, uh, presidency kind of era. It's, one thing that I really like about Mass Effect is it tries to give you that, but really it's just a veneer and this society is kind of a bit rotten and, and hollow underneath. And elements of this game really explore that, which I enjoy, which is that there is clearly classism between the species in this universe. It's like the council races, the Asari, the Turians and the Salarians run galactic civilization. Humanity is fighting to kind of be seen as just someone to have a seat at the table in the first game. Um, and that kind of um, dynamic is really interesting, but the way that other alien races have been denied having any sort of power or agency in this universe, like the Elkor or the Hanar or the Volus, all alien races that don't seem to have like proper bipedal bodies or have bodies that seem to be unable to live in oxygen-rich environments, all these alien races seem to be subjected to some sort of, of like, lessening. They're called lesser races by Avena, which is the council uh, tour guide of the Citadel. There is a lot of language implying that they don't have the skill or the ability to be able to pitch in the resources to be a council race. And I think there's just, like, a real undercurrent of just, like, this is a universe that is deeply broken. It gets into a lot of this with how the Krogan are treated. I think the racism around the Krogan as well. And then um, consequently, the way that the entire story arc involving that alien race is resolved in the third game is probably some of the most satisfying story writing that's ever been put together by Bioware and is honestly a reason alone to dive into this series is to just see how the Krogan story arc goes from Mass Effect 1 with the character Rex, who's a mercenary, all the way to some real galaxy-shifting stuff in Mass Effect 3, impacting the whole race and trying to undo a horrible genocidal thing that was done to them thousands of years ago. It's it's really fascinating stuff. And, you know, some of that stuff really holds up well. Like, there's some really great world building in this universe that makes me glad to have been able to go back to it, to come back to some of these characters and really think about some of the things that it was playing with, even on the sidelines um, that I think hold up to scrutiny or, or are really worth questioning in this series as well. So it makes me excited that there'll be more Mass Effect at some point in the future. They've announced there will be a Mass Effect 4. So um, I, I guess I am excited for that. Um, but yeah, I was, I was surprised how much of this 
still impacted me emotionally. I think, you know, Mass Effect 3 remains for me the best of the three games in terms of playability and of just how much the combat improves and just how much polish went into elements of it. I think it does have some of the best character work in the three games as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's the Mass Effect trilogy. Honestly, it's for anyone who just wants to try these games if they've never played them before or anyone who wants to go back. You're listening to Mainstream by Pixelsift. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. So that's it for this week. That's been Mainstream by Pixelsift. It's what video games the Pixelsift team have been playing at the moment. My name is Adam, and a big thanks for being part of episode 26 with me, Nicholas, and for listening to me ramble about Mass Effect for way too long. Hey, man, it's a pleasure. What can I say? Yeah. Big thanks to Brian Fairbanks from Salty Dog Sounds for composing the mainstream theme music. Nicholas, where can people find you on the wonderful world of the internet? Yeah, well, you know, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Nick Kennedy. And if they want to read some of your writing or some work that you've done? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm 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 working in a few different places at the moment. I, I work with Pixel Sift, of course, um, where you can listen to my wonderfully newly mic'd voice, which is uh you know wonderful. Um, but also on Screen Hub, um, on uh, in the Big Issue, and on um, Stack Magazine. Awesome. And look, I'm just on Twitter. I'm I'm not good with words. Uh, I'm at Adam Christo, and I'm probably tweeting memes. So I'm very sorry. Um, you know who else is on social media though? It's Pixel Sift. See, see what I did there. Yeah. Um, we're on social media. You can add us at Pixel Sift on Twitter or Instagram. You can join us and say hi, talk about your favorite games. We've even got a Discord. You can join that. Say hello to us in real time. It's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord to join that. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And we've also got another podcast. Uh, that one's just called Pixel Sift, and that's where we talk about game uh, talk to sorry game developers, creatives, and people who are doing cool things uh, in interactive media. So head over to your podcast player and type in Pixel Sift and give us a follow. You can even uh, get every episode of Pixel Sift and Mainstream for free. Thanks, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say that. And we've got heaps more for you to check out on our website as well. Be sure to head on over to pixelsift.com.au for videos, articles, and much, much more. That's pixelsift.com.au. Like what you heard? Well, why not tell a friend who you think would like Pixel Sift as well? They can... Give us a listen. You can support the show by giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform as well. That's it for Mainstream. Adios. See you later. Ciao. Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 